Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Our friend Noel is on adventures today. They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Uh, quick check-in, Matt, uh, my, my dear, dear friend over these many years, how are you today? Well, let me tell you. Uh, no, uh, I'm great. I'm going to get to play some magic later tonight with my buddy Charlie, who lives in upstate New York, and I haven't talked to him in forever. And he finally agreed to uh, just, you know, to let me be my middle school self again and play some magic with him. And I'm very excited about that. Uh, you and I are going to have a game together pretty soon. That's right. That's right, Matt. Yeah, I've got to go back to the office and pick up one of my uh, favorite gifts I ever received, a deck of uh, magic cards that I suppose are vintage nowadays that you and Tyler made for me uh, many moons ago. I'm, I'm quite excited. I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to scoop those up this weekend and spend some time uh, 
<laughs> doing what I did pretty often as a child, playing uh, multiplayer games with myself. Uh, shout out to my one man D and D campaign, uh, just to make sure I know what's going on there. Yeah, just and for other listeners, just who are interested here, there is a reason that we don't have to talk about on air here that you and Nolan and I may have to be at least somewhat close to each other in proximity very soon. I'm thinking about bringing a deck for Noel and forcing him to play a game with us because I don't know that he's ever played Magic before. Uh, we'll see if it works out. I imagine he'll be delighted. I imagine he'll be delighted. <laughs> so so before we get into today's episode, we do have one uh, on-air correction that a couple of listeners caught. And I just wanted to get this out here because it's important. Uh, specifically, earlier in our episode on Operation Infection with AK, we had a couple of times referred to AIDS as standing for auto immunodeficiency syndrome that is incorrect uh i i misspoke there i think probably i'm i'm the most egregious person uh with this one it is actually acquired immunodeficiency syndrome so that's a that's a, maybe a, a small difference in terms of speech but it's a big difference in terms of what it stands for and of course it affects a great many people if you don't know what we're talking about please check out uh, Operation Infection, where we do, in fact, uncover a proven conspiracy uh, <laughs> about HIV and AIDS. Yes, and specifically some meddling that occurred uh, from uh, from Russian actors, let's say. There we go. When we say Russian actors, we don't mean uh, the stars of screen and stage, <laughs> right? We mean the, the <laughs> no. other actors. Yeah. Today, we're, I'm super excited about this one. Um, maybe a way to segue into this is uh, the world of games, specifically video games. Now, um, you know, Matt, you and I have talked at length over more than a decade now that we've been hanging out about video games of all sorts and all stripes. Um, do you remember Uncharted 3? I do. Uncharted is a fabulous franchise. Uh, the fourth iteration recently was available on PS Plus or PlayStation Plus, if anybody subscribes to that. Hopefully you've played it. Great Treasure Hunter series. Um, and in the third version, the third uh, iteration, oh boy, you get into a lost city. Is it Lemuria? Lem Lemuria that that is featured in that one, or is it Atlantis? It is a, a lost city in the wild desert of the Middle East. Ah, uh, yeah. a, a city that was rumored to be home to Jin. A city that was rumored to have uh, untold wealth before it was cursed by the divine. We won't spoil it too much. Uh, I believe you can still get at least Uncharted 1 through 3 for free on PlayStation's uh, special looking out for you during the quarantine deal. Uh, so I, I recently replayed this. Uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic game if you're a fan of Indiana Jones. If you're not really a fan of um, video games, but you do like film and films like Indiana Jones, then think of that almost as, at times it's more like an interactive movie. You know what I mean? It's a journey. And you mm -hmm. and you can set the, uh, if you're particularly unmotivated for video game stuff, you can set the levels low enough 
uh, such that you're just kind of sitting through a movie where you occasionally push buttons. You know, it's like, uh, what was that? Dragon's Lair. That's another old, old one. But you're right, Matt. Lost Cities. They play a big part in Uncharted uh, because Lost Cities play a huge part in human civilization. Like, typically, right, when you hear people talk about ancient lost cities, let's say you're flipping through television or you're flipping through your books and you, you come across that phrase, lost city, lost civilization. In the modern day, we tend to dismiss that concept, like right out, you know, places like you mentioned Lemuria or it's um, the the Beatles to its Rolling Stone, uh, Atlantis and so on. These are all kind of thought to be legends, right? And And we've done stories on those in the past, uh, I think we actually we got to a pretty surprisingly solid answer on the mystery of Atlantis a while back, but lost cities, lost civilizations. The the amazing and disturbing thing about this is they're not that crazy. It turns out our species, as we've said before, we're cartoonishly good at losing things. Whether we're talking about car keys passwords, technologies, cities, entire civilizations. The vast span of human history is this like long-running joke about us making stuff and then completely forgetting about it, or at least mostly forgetting about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, y you can look at almost every major civilization space. So a place where a civilization began, you can look even if it's a city now, let's say in a place like Atlanta, just as an example, there are versions of Atlanta that exist below it that were built on top of, you know, for, for cities to exist. London is a really good example of that. New York, where there's a version of that place of history that literally went away or went underground, essentially. Um, and you can think about yeah. all kinds of things that we've lost over time, um, you know, entire technologies that have come and gone, you know, even just an entire civilization, a, a, a whole place where humanity grew and thrived for a while and just went away for one reason or another. And sometimes even when we know the, uh, the location of a lost place, quote unquote lost, even when we know uh, where the ruins are, we still can run into mysteries about why tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people one day just, just left, right? Uh, there are a lot of questions that remain unanswered because history is alive, right? Uh, in today's episode, we're exploring a city that some people may not have heard of, uh, but, a, but a city that occupies a unique place in folklore and in science here in the modern day. In fact, we call this a lost city, but it may have already been found. And where better to start with this story than with a legend? So here are the facts. There was once, according to legend, a place known as Iram of the Pillars. It was also known as Ubar, or Ubar for short. We're going to be calling it Ubar in this, uh, in this story. But it was also known as Wubar, with a W, Irem, Iram, uh, sometimes it was just known as the City of the Pillars. It was this legendary place. Uh, it was, or it has been over the course of history, taken as this indisputable fact that there was a true place, a thing 
that existed by one of these names, um, generally by people who follow uh, in the faith of Islam. It's uh, explicitly mentioned, by the way, in the Quran, which is a, a good thing to know for the rest of this story here. Um, the specific phrase, by the way, that, that's found there is Iram dot al imad, uh, and it's sometimes translated to you know a, um, a maybe a less prestigious sounding phrase called Iram of the tent poles. Eh, not so, not so cool. Sounds much better when it's al imad, but the English translation of its men- but we've got it actually here. We've got the English translation of its mention in the Quran, right? Yeah, here's how the explicit mention in the Quran reads in English. Quote, uh, and we're because of the differences between English and Arabic, there are good, there's going to be some slippage here. There are some um, words or pieces of sentence structure that don't quite translate, but we'll give you the gist. Quote, have you not considered how your Lord dealt with Aram, who had lofty pillars, the likes of whom had never been created in the lands, and with Damud, who carved out the rocks in the valley, and with Pharaoh, owner of the stakes, all of whom oppressed within the lands and increased therein the corruption? So your Lord poured upon them a scourge of punishment. Indeed, your Lord is in observation. That's the... that's. The words of the prophet, right in in the Quran. That's the story of uh, it's the story of this kind of warning to the reader. It's like, hey, think about what happened to this place. Think about what happened to this guy. Uh, and that last line comes off, I think, a little bit mild, where it says, "Indeed, your Lord is an observation." Maybe a more direct way to say that in American English today would be, you know, watch out, God is watching you, you know? Yeah, it always feels like somebody's watching (laughs) me because uh, it has been stated here that uh, he, she, it is indeed. There's another version of of this, by the way, where, or I guess of the story of the legend, where Ubar was this center of trade, of wealth, of society. It was located along this really lucrative uh, trade route that existed at the time in which it was a place that was, you know, thriving. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's where merchants would transport all kinds of things or, or this, this trade route is where merchants would trade all kinds of things. And Ubar was a major stop there. And one of the big things that they traded was frankincense. And this is, has been mentioned a lot, or at least is a major point of this one version of the legend. Yeah. Oh, they were balling out. Uh, they were making so much money off this frankincense trade, which included myrrh. Uh, you know, for uh, people who people are who, fans of the three, the three wise men. <laughs> mm-hmm. Then, then you you'll notice that uh, frankincense and myrrh, which are not super big commodities to a lot of people today, were profoundly impressive gifts back then. Uh, they were, you know, they were status symbols. They were associated with things that were holy. And so being a part of this trade, the people of Ubar made a lot of money. They uh, they obtained many riches, jewels, etc. Uh, and, and this story follows, you know, the kind of uh, Pixar version. Once upon a time, as you said, Matt, uh, Ubar was the center of the trade in frankincense. 
And every day they got wealthier and wealthier and wealthier until one day a prophet arrives. And this is a pre-Islamic prophet, by the way, in this legend. A prophet arrives and foretells that the city and the entire civilization of Ubar would be destroyed by God as punishment for their wicked, wicked ways. The king, who was not aware that he was to be the last king of Ubar, ignored the prophet. And a short while later, the city disappeared from the historical record. It was buried under the shifting sands of the empty quarter in Arabia, they called it then, but Saudi Arabia, we call it now. Yeah, it's a, it feels maybe at first glance or first listen as a similar parable that has existed in a couple of different holy books and a couple, couple of different, um, societies and kind of historical records where there's this place that became so wealthy, uh, they just were bored in some ways because they had so much time on their hands and they started to do the things that idle hands do, which is generally considered, you know, the devil's work or the bad things, the wicked, evil things. Um, and then it gets destroyed because a force of good, in this case, God comes through and says, no, <laughs> um, <laughs> but and you know but if you continue along the legend even though it was destroyed it you know if it if it was real then it would still exist out there somewhere right at least according to legend right somewhere out there in the dry ocean of the desert one may still discover the ruins of ancient ubar all the riches within and possibly all the uh, all the curses and consequences you would run into for uh, for violating the wishes of the divine, and and you know what, Matt? Yeah, but but mostly mostly all those all those vases full of that dank frankincense. Mm-hmm. Dankincense. That'll be the name of the company we start. Dankincense. Uh, yeah, we'll find something for myrrh as well, because myrrh is still in very much in the game in this part of the story, but. You're right. So the details of the disaster uh, are are naturally vague. The idea, you know, uh, at the time this story takes place, when it's traced to antiquity, usually natural disasters are always seen as happening for some sort of reason. No one is ever saying, hey, uh, we have famine because we couldn't grow crops because of the drought. They say, oh, we are encountering famine because we have crops, because of the drought, because God is super PO'd at us, you know, because we didn't make the right sacrifices or didn't propitiate the right prayers at the right time in the calendar, etc. And that's there's nothing wrong with that. That's just the human mind, because humans have always been, you know, these are still homo sapien. They're very much like us. They're still trying to categorize and frame and understand the world. Uh, so when you hear details about Ubar's demise, you might you'll hear people say, you know, well, it was God that struck them down, and then you'll hear other people say, oh, it was God who struck them down, but God did it this way, right? Through an earthquake, maybe, or through a sandstorm that never stopped. It's kind of like uh, Atlantis, right? That's another example, or Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a it's a that's a good example. Yeah, yeah, because it has the wickedness, right? And it's and it's still. You know, it's a story that's common to what they call uh, people of the book, right? Uh, Judeo-Christian, Islamic belief systems. But Ubar has a couple of things in its legend that make it different. First, 
speculation about Ubar has continued, you know, uh, since the writing of the Quran, which really popularized it, uh, because that is that is a book that is fundamental to many civilizations. And then some other lost city legends, just by contrast, they claim that there are ancient origins to them, but they end up being examples of embellishments, maybe, or outright hoaxes. This is not the case here. I mean, Aram Ubar was popularized in the West in the uh, 30s and really picked up some modern uh, shine and PRTLC in the 1990s. But again, it's been known in the Middle East. The, the West alone is not the world. It was known in the Middle East since the Quran, since before then. It assumed its more modern interpretation way back during the um, aggregation and um, dissemination of the anthology we know of as 1001 Nights, a fantastic book that was composed over centuries during the Islamic Golden Age. We still don't know, to, to be completely clear, how that book was formed. It's a mystery of its own. But that's not the only reason Ubar is unique. Yeah, there are some some pretty old maps that actually placed a physical location of Ubar on these maps. Um, there was, there's one where it's depicted as Omanum Emporium. There, and that's on uh, Ptolemy's lap, P-T-O-L-E-M-Y, his map of the world. Um, this guy, Claudius Ptolemy, he was born in Greece, lived in Egypt, and this is around 110 to 170 AD. So that's some time ago, let's say. It's also mentioned by several other Islamic commentators throughout the years, the centuries that have existed as possibly existing in one place or another, and, and in multiple like versions of it, essentially, uh, of the legend. Yeah, yeah. The primary evidence, uh, which you know we're very thankful for, um, a lot of the primary evidence comes from religious or religious-affiliated text. So there's going to be this ongoing debate about translation, you know, and then about, like you said, Matt, is this is this literally a city? Is this literally a civilization? Is this a metaphor? You know, is this like a a larger version of all those stories that even today kids hear? Like, don't do act A, B, or C, or else you'll have consequence X, Y, or Z. What if it wasn't a city at all? What if it was a region instead? So instead of, uh, you, you know, like what if or whenever the U.S. falls – and you fast forward a couple millennia or something, uh, what if no one remembers the city of Atlanta and they talk about the lost city of Georgia? It's located somewhere on this continent. And everybody, everybody's got weird ideas about it. It would be the lost city of coming, I think. There we go. That stuff happens all the time. And then the, the name would get uh, distorted and telephoned, and it would be like Kumink or Kumang, or something like that. Yeah, that, that happens constantly, constantly. So maybe it wasn't even a region. Maybe it was not geographical. Maybe it was a name for a people, uh, which also happens pretty often, right? Because we know that in ancient times, and even now, uh, groups of people, communities, and tribes, the, the names that outsiders use refer to the place where those people are found, Right. And the places where they live get named after them, uh, Israelites, Israel. You know what I mean? Like, especially the Middle East is full of this stuff. So 
Ubar has long been associated with a group of people called the Ud, spelled like apostrophe A-D, but pronounced more like Ud. And back in the 11th century, there was a guy, a commentator named Nashwan bin Said Himyari, who said, quote, Ubar is the name of the land which belonged to Ud in the eastern part of Yemen. Today, it's an untrodden desert. Owing to the dying up of its water, there are to be found in it great buildings which the wind has smothered in sand. He doesn't really mention God. He just mentions these people built some stuff and they're no longer in the game. How intriguing is that, though? I mean, again, like bring back Indiana Jones, just some of these concepts that at least I, as, as a child and then growing up, were so fascinating of, you know, finding, being able to one day maybe chase down some historical place like this or discovering a lost place, a lost people that existed somewhere. Um, it's, it's, it's just such fuel for the imagination. And, you know, it really just depends on where you look, who you ask, who you just want to believe, I guess, on how you think about Ubar where it could be, what it could be, who the actual people were, and what occurred there. Um, or, and it also depends on your faith, uh, honestly, depending on, you know, the, the books you grew up with as the important pillars of your, your faith and your understanding of the world. But it's really cool that this place has all of this potential built within it. You know, uh, you, may, you may have uh, grown up most familiar with that description in the Quran, you may have, you may have been a fan of T. E. Lawrence, the famous and very strange explorer and military mm-hmm. officer. Uh, he, he's the one who I think popularized calling it the Atlantis of the Sands. But the most important thing about the Atlantis of the Sands is that we're pretty sure someone found it. What are we talking about? We'll tell you after a word from our sponsor. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand. Tempt to hire part-time or full-time you name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. 
$25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Here's where it gets crazy. Matt, we got to we got to talk about these searches. You know, I it's Oh yeah. People are out here changing the world, man. One time I fell asleep trying to put on a pair of pants. Like this is this <laughs> this is a great examination of human ingenuity if nothing else. Uh, the other day I fell asleep I stuck my head into my son's rocket ship tent and I was playing with him really actively and I totally passed out right there. So I, I feel you, Ben. <laughs> Just saying, uh, maybe maybe we should stop falling asleep on our various jobs, such as pants putting on. <laughs> but, uh, but other people have not been sitting around getting drowsy. They've been out there searching the desert for stuff, um, which is really, really cool. There are several individuals who believe they have uncovered this place uh, that was mentioned in the Quran. And, you know, there's there's debate on who's right, who actually found it. And we're going to go through all of that stuff right now. But you really can find people who have claimed at least to have found this legendary place, Ubar or Iran, that was mentioned in the Quran, that specific version of it. And they think they found it in the Middle East, uh, in places from Oman to Yemen uh, to uh, Jordan, places in Jordan, the place called the Wadi Rum, the Wadi Rum, uh, 
This is, uh, oh, the infamous Rub, what is this, Ben? I don't know this. The infamous Rub al-Kali? Yeah, that's right. The Rub al-Kali, uh, we should, or the empty quarter. Uh, we should note that, as far as we know, uh, neither of us are Arabic speakers, unless we had a wild weekend and forgot about it. Uh, the empty quarter is a, a vast stretch of immensely inhospitable land that we'll we'll talk about in a little bit. But I noticed, Matt, you pointed out Wadi Rum, uh, Wadi Rum. Let's 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 talk about this a little bit. So it's in Jordan. It's its name translates, or it's called the Valley of the Moon. And this looks otherworldly. It's a desert landscape. Picture a lot of flat, sandy valley beds. Wadi is Arabic for. Uh, valley and they're bordered by these enormous red sandstone cliffs it's the largest valley in jordan and it also carries the signs of ancient human occupation we've got inscriptions petroglyphs ruins of temples uh graffiti uh, stuff that dates back as far as twelve thousand years people have been there for a long long time yeah and it's one of those places that the glory of, you know, the natural surroundings in this, you know, the somewhat starkness of it as well, wasn't really known by the West until some guy walked through there who happened to be British. Um, a man named T.E. Lawrence, he was a British military officer. Um, he really brought it to the West's attention, who was passing through there during the Arab Revolt, which occurred between 1916 and 1918. And he, he, you know, was moved by the experience of going through that area. And he wrote a book about his experience called Seven Pillars of Wisdom. And then we get into a um, a weird circumstance here, uh, a little bit of a PR move, because there's a formation at Wadi Room called the Seven Pillars of Wisdom. That's what it's called today. It's great for tourism. That's not its original name. Its original name was like Jabal al-Mamzar, the the mountain of the plague. And so... Ooh. Yeah. Nobody wants to visit the mountain of the plague. I mean, I'm down. But, you know, uh, I'm sure there's another mountain of a plague somewhere. So this was this was renamed even though the, the formation that's mentioned has nothing to do with the seven pillars actually mentioned in Lawrence's book, even in like later editions. It is all about tourism there. It is a hugely popular tourist destination, and it's, of course, an enormously important uh, site of human civilization. It's also something that you, fellow conspiracy realists, have probably seen before. You just didn't know it. You might have thought it was planet Mars in The Martian. You might have thought it was any number of backdrops for films set in the Middle East or on our uh, red neighbor, uh, just just a planet away. Uh, it's also in um, it's in some famous ones. Oh yeah, I've, there's a Star Wars movie, Rogue One, that used it. Uh, the Transformers: Revenge of the Fallen featured this, and my favorite one, even though it wasn't my favorite movie, but my favorite version of it. Uh, is seen in Prometheus. I really liked the way it was treated there, uh, at least on camera. Mm, yeah. Also, of course, it's in the Aladdin reboot, uh, the live action. Oh, 
I forgot about that one. I never asked you, you know, I forgot to ask your opinion on that. I know that we both loved that uh, film growing up, and I, I still think it holds up. But what did you see the remake? Hot take. I suffered through it until Will Smith's, like, 10th line, and then I turned it off. Or I didn't turn it off. My son and my wife continued to watch a little bit, uh, but I left the room. Man. I couldn't handle it. In silent protest. <laughs> no, it, was, it wasn't. It wasn't very silent. It was definitely like, Ugh, and then left. Yeah, Robin Williams uh, left some big shoes to fill, and I don't think it's. I, I mean, it's funny because I really liked. I really enjoyed all the other actors in there. I thought they nailed it, and for some reason, again, this is just one person's opinion. Um, We'll have to get Paul's about this off air too. Uh, it just felt like they were trying to make it Will Smith plays Will Smith as a genie. I mean, to be fair, that's that's what Robin Williams was doing too. I just uh, I like the earlier songs. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, I, I it's a real mountain of the plague, seven pillars of wisdom scenario, you know. <laughs> The sure. translation just, or <laughs> the change up just didn't, didn't play as, in this case, didn't play as well. Yeah. Yeah. True. Uh, but again, visually, you know, there, there's stunning scenes in there. And, and again, I think the vast majority of the actors nailed it. So I don't want to be unfair. Uh, I just, I just, I think I figured out how I like my uh, culturally appropriated idea of Jin in Disney films. Cause it's not <laughs> yes. like, it's not like. The Robin Williams genie is in any way accurate to begin with, uh, indeed. Uh, but if you're gonna if you're gonna make a scary version, like the scariest version of a jinn, which is the the one that this genie is supposed to inhabit, and you're gonna make them like a family friend friendly G version, then mm. you know go all the way with it. Just make <laughs> them super happy and transforming into all kinds of different Western characters from pop culture. <laughs> That's right. So I'm going to watch that later, uh, as long as we don't get disappeared. Uh, I think we can close the book, though, on Wadu Room. It's definitely an historically significant site, but it is probably not the uh, Atlantis of the Sands, as T.E. Lawrence called it. It's probably not uh, a lost city. There are some ancient temples there, uh, but the the fact is there's so much tourism there now that if there were an ancient empire or a gigantic city, it would have been found. Uh, like the, mm. the, the I, I mean, people travel from around the world to visit and film there. I would say that just going with the name, the Mountain of the Plague, may make you think if you put yourself in the shoes of maybe someone exploring the area who isn't fully familiar with it may make you think that, well, you know, this place was named the mountain of the plague. Uh, perhaps there was something that happened here a long time ago that we don't fully understand. I can imagine that scenario or at least that thought process. Totally. Totally. And I agree. I mean, you know, when you get to a place that's had human beings for that long, I'm sure there were several plagues. You know what I mean? I'm, yeah. I, I don't think somebody probably didn't make that name up for fun. They didn't think it was cool. They remembered when people died of the plague in the area and they were like, don't, don't even get to where you can friggin' see that mountain, bro. It's messed up. Yeah. Uh, I could totally Ugh. see that. 
History is filled with ghosts. We're going to shoot all our movies there. <laughs> and now we shoot Sorry. movies there. Now we shoot movies there. So uh, there are also a lot of films shot uh, around the area of the empty quarter, the Rubakali. If if you're going just off the oral traditions and the legends, it makes a lot of sense to think that a city might have been there and vanished because it feels like the easiest place for uh, hum- human beings to vanish. It's it's vast. It's a sand desert. It, it covers most of the southern third of the Arabian Peninsula, and it is huge. It's like 250,000 square miles. That means it goes across Saudi Arabia, goes across the United Arab Emirates, goes across Oman, Yemen, and today it's it's a rough neighborhood for humans. It's actually rougher for humans now than it was in ancient times. And even then, it was no walk in the park. It rains like, or sorry, not even rain. The precipitation is like maybe 1.4 inches on a good year. The temperatures can reach as high as 51 degrees Celsius for everyone in the- Oh, 51? That's not bad. (laughs) Right. For everyone in the States, that's 124 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, and And it gets cold AF at night. It's like one of those places in the world where if you look at it objectively, are humans supposed to be here? Are we really, do we need to go out here? You know, like, I don't know, man. I I really don't know. Well, maybe not anymore, but back before the intense uh, desertification, desertification that's been occurring out there and, you know, on a continual level and and increasing, um, it was a pretty cool place to be a good place to at least travel through in a lot of the areas of it, because guess what? Guess what they did. Hmm. They traded things in caravans like, uh, frankincense and myrrh (laughs) and myrrh and myrrh. I don't know why it feels like it feels like there's a Simon and Garfunkel thing going on with frankincense and myrrh, or maybe it's like if we were selling a box of frankincense, it would say like frankincense now with myrrh. And dude, no, I'll tell you a better one. Yeah, it's it's Hall and oats. <laughs> oh wow, because it feels so healthy, it should, or something like extra that you don't need. You just want the Hall. <laughs> So, yes, I, I get it. You know, it's like uh, it's like people will eat the uh, eat the oats, but yeah, we're here for the halls. That makes <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Like, so maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. But your point is right. Desert desertification, the process of becoming more desert-like, has increased over time to the present level today. Before then, it was still very much a wasteland. But caravans, often on camelback, would uh, would be able to traverse established routes here to get that sweet, sweet frankincense and myrrh, and move it to uh, move move it to more densely populated areas where it would fetch a great premium, as much as uh, for its rarity as for its smell. And these this trade occurred till around an estimated like three hundred A.D. People were doing this, but. The problem with the empty quarter is is um, the same thing that makes made people think that's where Aram could be or Ubar could be. It's that it is it is huge. In the days before satellite observation, 
it, it would be really difficult for early explorers, especially as you said, uh, the 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 British guys, the Aristos, who are walking in and, and quote unquote discovering all this stuff. Uh, it would be really tough for them to systematically comb the desert without uh, without dying of thirst starvation when they got lost now the native people the bedouin knew their way around right but yeah exactly especially if you're trying to do it you know space balls style and combing the <laughs> desert like that, that'd be a rough gig it's a rough gig it takes a lot of people and a lot of time so yeah there could be an ancient oasis in the area we know there are oases all around the edges of the empty quarter that's what defines the empty quarter. It's the empty part. <laughs> and the stuff around the edges <laughs> has stuff there. But if you were going to find something, if you were going to find an ancient city, uh, where would you start looking? How would you find it? This leads us to uh, the various attempts to discover it. So we've nailed down that it's probably not in the empty quarter. At least so far as we know, it's unlikely that it would be. And then it's probably not in uh, Wadi Room in Jordan. But we've got a, we got a bunch of uh, pretty moneyed British explorers who have nothing, who have no other goals other than to make some money off the native cultures and later brag to their friends at the Royal Geographic Society. And they were all about this. And we also have satellite technology now and other, you know, advanced technology. Uh, so that's a bit of a spoiler. And we'll tell you about the potential discovery after a word from our sponsor. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. 
When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. We're back. So let's start in 1930. There is an explorer named Bertram Thomas. Bertram Thomas has the goal of being the first European, in his opinion, to officially cross the sands of the empty quarter. He's at the southern edge of the area. And I, I just say in his opinion, because I take issue, I take issue with the idea of him being the first person ever from Europe to do that, because this is 1930. And there was a lot of stuff that happened before he got this idea. Anyway, uh, so he starts this journey and he, he's ready, you know, he's got his camels, got his entourage and stuff, uh, people who are, who are native to the land. And some members of his Bedouin entourage uh, tell him about the story of this lost city. And he says, all right, well, I'm going to find that. That's going to be something I can brag to the rest of my, uh, my lads about back home. He didn't find it, but he did tell T.E. Lawrence about it. Uh, T. Lawrence is the guy who popularized the phrase, the Atlantis of the Sands. He didn't just tell him about it. He said, right, old chap. And he marked a map for Lawrence with the supposed location. Lawrence, again, very weird dude. I don't want to kink shame anyone. I don't want to yuck anyone's yum, as Chuck would say. But Lawrence was a smart dude. And he immediately knew what we had just talked about, the, the, the vast difficulties of, of finding this needle of civilization in this haystack of the wild. So we said, you know, the only way we're going to be able to find this is if we somehow get in the air. We search by like airship, by a blimp. But he never followed through with it. 
you know, again, it's 1930s, 1940s, a lot of stuff's going down in the Middle East and Europe. But these statements that he made and that other explorers made cemented the idea of this lost Arab city in the Western zeitgeist. So people were obsessed with it. Yeah, and remember, T.E. Lawrence that we spoke about earlier is the seven pillars of wisdom guy in the Wadi room that we talked about. Same, same dude, same British military officer um, who, who tended to write a lot about these kinds of things. So that's why it makes sense that it kind of expanded out there in the minds of people in the West. But it didn't stop there, everybody. Let's jump forward 16 years to 1946 and to another English explorer, a what? British fellow named named Wilfred Thesiger. <laughs> Actually, uh, Wil, uh, maybe it's Wilfred Thesiger. I don't know how to say it. Wow, it's, it's English. Thesiger? I would go with Thesiger. Maybe put a little, right. little put a little British polish on it. I think you nailed it with it could, Thesiger. It, it could be the Seeger. <laughs> We'll call him Wilfred Thesiger. Well, uh, so uh, he's hanging out in a place called Shisir. It's in southern Oman. He's hanging out by this well that's, that's over there, just in an area, an undefined area. And he notes that he's seeing some kinds of crude stone, some kind of ruins maybe from a fort. He's seeing them on this rocky eminence. That's a, a quote there about the eminence. And some of the things that he finds there, let's, let's call them shards, uh, some of the things he finds in the area may be, in his opinion, they may be early Islamic. And, you know, he tells the Royal Geographic Society this, but nothing, you know, official comes out of it. There's no, like exploration in the moment because of this guy, Wilfred Thesiger's experience. But people remember, right? People, mm-hmm. people are keeping note. Just two years later, 1948, a party of uh, Bedouins and oil company employees are traveling there. They're surveying Dofar province. This is, of course, part of Western Europe's um, state-sponsored push to divide up the territories for resource acquisition, right? And they first see this place, Shasir, or also called Ash uh, they, the They're approaching it from the south, and the first thing they see is this white cliff in the distance. As they get closer, they say, hey, this cliff is not just a cliff, it's uh, man-made. It's the wall of a ruined fort, and it's built above this large cave and there's an entrance to this cave but it's obscured by a sand dune i mean i'm just i am picture i don't know about you guys but i'm picturing like this crazy indiana jones music in my head they found the fort had been built from the same white rock as that cliff and this gave them this to them seemed to indicate that the uh, this whole thing was a single structure one of the geologists said you know, there are no houses or tents or people here. There's just this tumble-down ruin in this pre-Islamic fort, womp womp, because the geologists didn't have modern satellites. God, we're throwing so many spoilers in this. They didn't have archaeological equipment. They were unimpressed by the ruin. They were like, there's not even oil here, bro. Uh, in fact, their guides and them, they all referred to it as, quote, difficult water 
because it was the only watering hole for miles and miles and miles around. And they had to spend three days trying to get water from this dying well for their camels. So it was like they they stopped in a place because it had one thing that they needed. They barely had that. They wrote down a one-star review of it in their Yelp travel journal, and then they dipped out. But all of those things that happened were still on a record. Fast forward uh, to the 80s and 1990s. Yeah, that's right. Zero Michelin stars for... <laughs> she served before that. Now, I jumped in 1991, same area. Uh, there's a, just before we get into this, there is a fantastic New York Times uh, old school article from 92, I think, that was written about this that we recommend you go check out. The title of it is On the Trail from the Sky, Roads Point to a Lost City. So if before we talk about it, if you want to read it, hey, it's good stuff in there. Um so there's there's a filmmaker from Los Angeles named Nicholas Clapp. Uh, really, really cool spelling, by the way. I don't know if he spells it that way because of a Screenwriters Guild thing, but uh, C-L-A-P-P is his last name. Um, you know, he's one of those guys, it's, it's the 90s. This guy's grown up with a fascination of, you know, the the romantic mystery that exists out there in ancient, you know, Arabia and the sands, as well as, uh, you know, this, the concept of these huge caravanning, um, frankincense trade that that's occurring. Right. Um, and he goes out to that same area, Shisur, and really what he wants to do is use that new technology that has been developed since people have been looking at this place. And he wants to, you know, he really just wants to discover this place, right? And he ends up finding things, things that have never been found out there before. Yeah, so he assembles this um, this crew of, of specialists, as you said, to investigate. Uh, they include financial backers. Uh, they also include uh, scientists from JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratories. And then uh, he also gets with uh, Randolph Fiennes, who, yes, is related to the actor Ralph Fiennes, uh, who plays Voldemort. I, I thought you would enjoy that, Paul. He also plays the, or the antagonist in Red Dragon uh, in the mm -hmm. Silence of the Lambs franchise. Anyhow, uh, he has his relative, Randolph Fiennes, He's a well-to-do European, and he is also uh, affiliated with the Sultan of Oman. So he's kind of their fixer on the ground. So they get together, and they're they're reviewing this footage from these satellites. And again, this is the very early days of this. This is before you know widespread use of um, a lot of other technologies that people have today. But they see things that you wouldn't see if you're walking on the ground. One of the most important things they find is a network of ancient camel tracks, caravan routes that seem to converge on a couple of different places. One of them is Ashashur in Oman. And this like they, you know, they do all the ground, they do all the mental legwork they can before they go there because it's a bit of a journey. 
So their first ground exploration takes place in 1991. They learn so much stuff, and that's where we get to that that breathless, like, old-school NYT headline, on the trail from the sky, road points to a lost city. And then it begins with uh, this beautiful uh, quotation. It's The first sentence is just is just solid gold. Uh, Matt, do you, have, do you have maybe like a... I almost hate to ask, do, do you have a transatlantic voice for this one? Yeah, okay, I'll do it. Guided by ancient maps and sharp-eyed surveys from space, archaeologists and explorers have discovered a lost city deep in the sands of Arabia. They are virtually sure it is Ubar, the fabled entrepot of the rich frankincense trade thousands of years ago. And, it continues, Yes, and... There doesn't seem to be much question that we have discovered a monomemporium, says Dr. Joris Zoranis, the expedition's chief archaeologist. The site, he says, is very rich, no doubt about it. So is this the real Ubar? Uh, you know, under the direction of Dr. Zarens, the team starts digging. They excavate the walls and towers of this fortress. They're working fast. They find a site that dates back more than 2,000 years. How can they work that fast? You know, archaeological digs are a huge issue in the Middle East and because there are so many ancient civilizations and because there are so many modern civilizations at war over history right now, they're able to do this, again, because Ranulf Fiennes is buddy-buddy with the Sultan, what he says goes. So Dr. Zarens doesn't just find this, this ancient site. He also... Find, is able to trace its demise a little bit. And he says, uh, look, the site has this huge sinkhole kind of bisecting it if you look at the pictures. And he says it, it, it fell sometime between A.D. 300 and A.D. 500. And if you recall, earlier at the top of the show, we said A.D. 300 is about when the frankincense trade is suspected to have declined. Interesting, right? And, you know, when you keep thinking about it in this way, if there was some kind of cataclysm or a huge earthquake or a big sinkhole that formed and sucked in everything pretty quickly over the course of, you know, even a couple of years, you can imagine how perhaps that would have been blamed on an act of God of some sort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and he says specifically, it's like, look, you know, there was fossil water here. Uh, fossil water is something we talked about a little bit um, in our work on Libya years ago. Uh, fossil water is a non-renewable source of potable or drinkable water. And so it's kind of how this oasis was working. Uh, but it was also built over limestone. And so as more and more people and animals and agriculture, because they had irrigation schemes, more and more things started draining more and more water. It probably contributed to uh, an earthquake, or maybe it was the primary cause of this collapse. So the thing fell. The center could not hold. However, Dr. Zarens himself is quick to point out that there might be a chicken and egg thing. Because if frankincense trade, if the frankincense trade was still, you know, doing gangbusters, then there would have been enough finance, right? There would have been enough um, political will to rebuild this lost place. And that all depends on whether our modern idea of Ubar existed at all. 
Because, you see, Doc Z is not convinced. He's not. And it, it, but by the way, it also depends on whether or not they could actually get water if, if that, uh, you know, that fossil water was actually the reason that caused the collapse. But, but let's, let's talk about uh, Dr. Zarens and why he was unsure. Because there was this great interview with him from Nova. If, if you haven't watched a lot of Nova and you're listening to this, I highly recommend you do. It's really great. Um, they're not a sponsor, but I very much enjoy the programming with, with the stuff they put out there. Um, but they were speaking with him about Ubar, and we've got a quote from him. He says, there's a lot of confusion about that word, talking about Ubar. If you look at the classical texts and the Arab historical sources, Ubar refers to a region and a group of people, not to a specific town. People always overlook that. It's very clear on Ptolemy's second century map of the area. It says in big letters, La Bitarite. And in his text that accompanies the maps, he's very clear about that. It was only the late medieval version of the 1000 and one nights in the 14th and 15th centuries that romanticized Ubar and turned it into a city rather than a region or a people. Instead, he says, Shishir, the site they found is one of maybe three or four major trade and civilization centers of the Uberite at a time when this tribal group, the Uberites, thrived along the edges of the empty quarter. So he's saying that they didn't discover the mythical city, but in a way that they discovered something more important. They discovered the truth that inspired the myth. We have to remember that when people saw this city, they were seeing it after seven, eight days journey through utter desolation, no food, no water. Uh, we also have to understand that when, when they saw, like when you see it now, you can see photographs of the ruins today, along with artist depictions of how the actual fortress looked at its time, right? And the fortress itself especially after you've heard all these myths, it looks a little underwhelming, honestly. But you have to consider that many of the people who were living there, who were populating it, even on a permanent basis, they weren't living in this relatively small fortress. They were living outside around it. They were living in uh, large tents that you could open up to catch a breeze and things like that. They would probably only be in the fortress if there were some sort of siege or attack. It reminds me, like, it doesn't, okay, it doesn't look like a shining city of pillars in the pictures of the ruins or even in the artistic depictions. Uh, but, you know, then again, for anyone who's seen the Tower of London, this stuff doesn't look like a skyscraper, right? We have very different definitions of towers hundreds of years ago. You know what I mean? Anything over two, three, three floors, that's a tower. Oh, absolutely. I, and I really like your point there of just to reach that area, no matter for what reason you're traveling through or, you know, to get there, you would have been on a perilous journey. Um, this is a weird kind of way to think about it, but I, you shot a picture into my head, Ben, of a day that I worked a full day, like let's say eight, nine hours, then immediately after that shot, uh, a film festival 48 hours thing immediately following a full day of work. And I hadn't eaten food in like 30 hours or something. And somebody suggested getting Popeye's. I didn't know what that was. I tried it for the first time with my wife and it was the best piece of chicken I had ever eaten in my life. Now, is that because it was actually the best piece of chicken or is it because I was starved or I felt starving and 
you know, was so hungry that this just became a prized thing in that moment. I wonder if that experience is correct. And that's, it's a really great point, Ben. That's, I mean, you're making a really great point too. And, and not to date you there, Matt, but that is before the famous chicken sandwich. That was just like, you got a two or a three piece, right? With a biscuit. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I still, I stand by Popeye's. This is not an advertisement for Popeye's, but I think, um, at least here in Atlanta, one thing we love about Popeyes is you can tell how good the chicken's going to be by like how abrasive the people who work there are. The the best the probably some of the best Popeyes uh, here in our our neck of the global woods is right down the street from our office, where uh, famously I don't know about you I fa- I went there for lunch one day I was just trying to pick up something to eat I was in a hurry and when I pulled up. Uh, at the drive-through, the person on the other end said, "What?" <laughs> yeah. It's a one-to-one ratio on uh, how good the chicken is going to be and how much grief you get for ordering. Yeah. But I think you make a really great point about the psychology of people there, uh, because you know you are going into a place that a looked much more impressive when it was in its glory days before it collapsed back when there were hundreds of people there, there was irrigation and stuff, uh, it looked much better and people were much more appreciative because some of them probably came pretty close to dying while they were risking their lives and their fortunes in the frankincense trade. So there really, was there an Ubar of myth? Probably not. Was there a real place upon which Ubar is based? Yes, and we probably found it. This is a real-life case of a lost city that was found, like the lost city of Troy. And, you know, if it looks disappointing, and the Tower of London example is maybe a little disappointing too, uh, let's be further disappointing. The pyramids used to look way better. Those things used to be painted. Like, you know, I wish people would point that out more. They, They used to be more colorful. Anyway, uh, this <laughs> this fortress was surrounded by smaller villages that w- stretched out as far as six miles. It was um, it's an example, kind of of a what's called a caravanserai that become uh, you know a roadhouse, a stop on the road, um, you know, like uh, the same kind of thing that made Samarkand in Uzbekistan a, a huge uh, global force, regional force. It was it's. It's like, imagine if the only gas station for hundreds and hundreds of miles uh, became a town. That's, that's another way to look at it. And I don't, think, I don't think that's pejorative or dismissive at all. It's amazing. So maybe in conclusion, maybe the game of telephone strikes again. I know that's disappointing to some people, but it's amazing to me. I love it. And you know what it makes me think, Matt? I don't know about you. It makes me wonder. What else is out there? It's got to be more. That's exactly what I was going to say. Just because we found this one doesn't mean other stuff isn't out there. We haven't fully LIDARed that desert yet. At least I, I'm pretty sure we haven't because it would take a lot of LIDAR to, to go through that desert. But I'm just telling you, like, my excitement for possibilities out there in, in the shifting sands, it, it remains peaked and it will stay that way for a good time. Yeah, and it'll probably have to stay a sense of excitement and anticipation for a while because, you know, so much of that part of the world is embroiled in political instability. There are war zones, you know, in seats of ancient 
human civilization, and we're really and they're being destroyed. Right, right, and we're really faced with we're we're faced with a powerful dilemma, which is you know, um, will our species be able to come together and save its past? It's collective past. Make no mistake, you know, the the uh, ancient history of the Middle East, if you're listening to this, it is part of your history too. You trace yourself back far enough, it, it's it's part of your history somehow. So it's it's our collective responsibility to try to keep it around for those who come after. We're just, as we said in the very very beginning, we're very, very good at losing things. Let's hope we get a little bit better at rediscovering and preserving them. Um, let us know what you think about today's episode. Uh, we, we've run a little long, but we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. We're Conspiracy Stuff on Facebook and Twitter. We're we're Conspiracy Stuff Show on Instagram. Uh, but personally, if you're a Facebook person, do check out our Facebook page. Here's where it gets crazy. You can meet some of the best mods in the business and the best part of this show, your fellow listeners. Yes, please do. Uh, if you are a Facebook user, if you're not and you have a cellular phone or a mobile phone or a landline, you can call the number one eight three three stdwytk and you can leave us a message that Ben and I will certainly hear. Noel likely will as well. Paul refuses to listen to your messages on, on account of principle that his ears can only be used for a certain number of hours every day and he's generally producing or having to listen to us. Uh, <laughs> But we do look forward to hearing from you, your thoughts on this episode or on future episodes or just chatting with us or, you know, talking to us about your favorite magic, the gathering cards or how uh, Thomas Middleditch on the new special talks about it in episode two a lot. And it made me smile all, just all day long uh, oh, thinking uh, about Thomas Middleditch playing Magic the Gathering. <laughs> on their improv special? Yeah. Yeah, that's really yeah. good. No, uh, yeah, do check that out. Uh, and also, if none of that quite bags your badgers, uh, or if you are more comfortable with a, a little bit more anonymity, uh, please remember, you can always contact us to talk about Lost Civilizations, Magic the Gathering, Harry Potter, Popeye's Chicken, uh, whatever, whatever crosses your mind, we would love to hear from you. And we have an easy way for you to do it. Uh, it'll be on as long as we have this show around. It's our good old-fashioned email address. We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.